We must protect the position of the American dollar as a pillar of monetary stability around the world. In the past seven years, there's been an average of one international monetary crisis every year. Now, who gains from these crises? Not the working man, not the investor, not the real producers of wealth. The gainers are the international money speculators. Because they thrive on crises, they help to create them. In recent weeks, the speculators have been waging an all-out war on the American dollar. The strength of a nation's currency is based on the strength of that nation's economy. And the American economy is by far the strongest in the world. Accordingly, I have directed the Secretary of the Treasury to take the action necessary to defend the dollar against the speculators. I have directed Secretary Connolly to suspend temporarily the convertibility of the dollar into gold or other reserve assets, except in amounts and conditions determined to be in the interest of monetary stability and in the best interest of the United States. Season 1, Episode 7 of Sprott Gold Talk Radio. I'm your host, Ed Coyne, Senior Managing Director of Sprott Asset Management. On this podcast, we are turning back the pages of time to 1971. Fifty years ago, on August 15th, President Richard Nixon suspended the convertibility of the U.S. dollar into gold, effectively ending the Bretton Woods Agreement that had been put in place after the Second World War to stabilize the post-war global economy. The significance of this act was far-reaching, but no other asset was more affected than gold. We are joined today by a special guest who perhaps understands the full ramifications of this historic event better than most. I'm pleased to have Jim Grant, founder and editor of Grant's Interest Rate Observer, to join us today. Hello, Jim, and, and thank you for joining us on Sprott Gold Talk Radio. Ed, it is my pleasure. Nice to be with you. Jim, before we go back to the events of 1971, can you give our listeners a brief history of your background and your work at Grant's Interest Rate Observer? Uh, oh, yes. Be happy to, Ed. Let's see. I was born in 1946, which, as you know, was the uh, first full year, I guess, of the implementation of the Bretton Woods regime, as my mother told me at the time. And I was born like in month four of the great on the bear market of 1946 to uh, 81. So I'm, those are my bona fides. I, I was present at the creation. <laughs> and uh, since 1983, I have uh, edited something called Grant's Interest Rate Observer, which you were kind to mention. It's a twice-monthly journal on the financial markets. And uh, what I do for a living is uh, type. Well, Jim, you were kind enough to forward me the most recent one that you just produced on August 6th, Paper Money's Golden Anniversary. And, and I thought that was really a great segue into our podcast today because as a long-standing proponent of sound money and rational economic thinking, we at Sprott Asset Management see you as a kindred spirit. Today, we are not exactly celebrating the Nixon shock, but with 50 years in our rearview mirror, an acknowledgement or recognition is certainly in order. Jim, in your view, what factors led up to Nixon's decision to end the convertibility of dollars to gold, and what was the immediate fallout? Well, to take the immediate fallout first, the effect over the next 10 years was a great inflation that ripped and bored and finally ended with inflation 
in the double digits and with the accession to the chairmanship of the Fed of Paul A. Volcker to a brutal regime of towering interest rates and a deep recession and then decades and decades of paper money with which we live today. What led up to the abrogation of Bretton Woods was the simple fact that America was not prepared to subordinate its domestic monetary and economic interests to the exchange rate. America was losing gold and had promised to redeem. You could, if you were a central bank, present $35 bills, and the Treasury was uh, under the Bretton Woods system, was uh, committed to hand over one ounce of gold, 35 bucks to the ounce. That became a burdensome and very, very awkward situation when America was losing gold, and the French, for one, were insisting upon the right of redemption. For the 10 years or so leading up to Britain, America did everything it could to postpone the day of reckoning. We helped to set up something called the London Gold Pool, which tried to manipulate the gold price lower in free market trading. We implemented something called Operation Twist, which uh, jiggered or rejiggered interest rates to attract overseas dollar deposits by lifting short rates. We imposed quotas and the president lectured us on the patriotic duty of not to travel abroad, all these things, all these shifting, makeshift devices were unsuccessful as of course they would be in postponing what was in fact the necessary culmination of a constellation of economic facts. Those facts had to do with, with America emitting more dollar bills into the world than it earned. And you cannot keep giving up gold for dollars when you don't have the gold. And that was the, you know, the basic problem. The Bretton Woods system was not really a gold standard. It was and Keynes, in a moment of candor, called it the very opposite of a gold standard. Actually, it was kind of a mercy killing, was the cessation of Bretton Woods. You know, it really was not working as a monetary technique. Um, Nixon pulled the plug, and we look back on the Bretton Woods thing as, as kind of a, an orthodox and rigorous monetary setup. The dollar, after all, was anchored by gold. It was convertible by foreigners, not by American citizens, but by foreigners in particular foreign governments, what could be more orthodox than that? But in reality, it lacked the essential features of the classical gold regime and was a kind of a Keynesian idea of a gold standard. In fact, Keynes himself was the principal author. On one side, it sounds like Nixon really had no choice but to do this. And on the other side, many said it was just a really a political stunt for Nixon to get reelected. Not to weave politics into this, but I suspect today... That's probably more true than ever before with modern monetary theory and QE and interest rates lower for longer and all those things that are happening. What do you make of that? I mean, do you think there was any political ramifications to it or was it really a pure economic decision at the time? It was purely political. <laughs> you know, Nixon was running for election in 1972. And here's, here's imagine yourself as a counselor to the president, right? Mr. President, we have two choices. You can... Uh, reduce federal spending and cut short the war in Vietnam and tell the Federal Reserve to cut back on monetary stimulus and can save the Bretton Woods gold convertibility feature. Or you can't let the money supply rip and keep spending and get reelected. <laughs> what do you select? <laughs> and the president selected option B. Well, I tell you, I was looking at my questions here. I was like, well, certainly much has changed in the last 50 years. But in some ways, 
nothing's changed, right? It's, 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 Correct. it's still very much the same. Well, you know, the pro- a proper goal standard is all about the subordination mm-hmm. of domestic considerations to the exchange rate, right? To the, to the integrity of the currency as defined by its inviolable right of convertibility. There are not many peoples or politicians leading those peoples today who would, I think, who would at least now select that. Certainly, it was not an appealing choice in 1971. Well, it seems like we're, we're learning nothing from history, unfortunately. You know, you have things like cryptocurrencies in general. I won't use just Bitcoin, but cryptocurrencies in general continue to grab the headlines along with modern monetary theory, effectively, as I like to say, is, is the Frankenstein of Econ 101. We really don't know what all these different policies are going to do to our overall economy, whether it's from an inflation standpoint, from a K-shaped recovery of squeezing out, as you talk about a bit in your most recent letter, the middle class. I think I read in there that you know the middle class has gone from 61% down to 51%. And effectively, the middle class is our economy. So those are some problems that are byproducts of whether what we did 50 years ago or, or what we're doing today. How do you, and this is self-serving for us, you know, being a precious metals firm, but how do you see gold's role in the modern world with cryptocurrencies and with quantitative easing and zero rates for longer, that kind of thing? Where do you see gold's role in this environment? Gold's role is to go up, damn it. (laughs) (laughs) Oh, no, it's, it's immensely frustrating, right? Because we see heterodoxy posing as the gospel truth. We see heresy wrapped up in a sound policy. And uh, you keep on saying, uh, hello, Mr. Gold Bullion. Have you noticed what they're saying and doing? Have you noticed that the Fed's balance sheet has uh, doubled during the pandemic? Have you noticed that uh, the Fed is talking about nurturing a rate of inflation higher than its target in the midst of evident accelerating inflation. Have you noticed any of this? We address this mute thing called gold bullion and gold bullion keeps on slumbering. You have a self-interest in this. I have a self-interest. I've been, I'm a great advocate of gold and own some for myself. So gold's role is to serve the office. It is served from time immemorial, which is money. It is by no means a perfect and unvarying store of value. The great American economist Irving Fisher, who was heralded by Keynesians and monetarists alike as the singular American economic genius, uh, Irving Fisher came out with a scheme in the late 19-teens, 1920, to uh, help us stabilize gold. There had been uh, inflation since about 1900 or a few years earlier until about 1921, and Irving Fisher wanted something better than gold to deliver price stability. Well, we have tried all other things in gold, and we have not achieved price. So gold is the, as my friend Lou Lehrman says, is the least imperfect monetary medium, but it is now out of the limelight to having been shoved aside by uh, cryptocurrencies. If you could address inflation a little bit, and how are you seeing it right now in the current environment? And clearly in the 70s, the act of decoupling gold and dollar could certainly be pointed the finger at causing inflation. And, and, and maybe we're finding that to be the case now with all this quantitative easing and suppressing interest rate and you know free cash and so forth. Could you dive into that a little bit and help our listeners think about how inflation really can impact an overall portfolio over time? I guess uh, one ought to try to define it first. I think inflation is a, a growth of money in excess of uh, a compensating rise in the demand for money. Inflation 
is not the manifestation of inflation. Inflation is too much money. Which redundant portion of money is expressed in different stuff? You know, so uh, you can have uh, inflation that's suppressed by packaging and through the willful averting of eyes, right? People choose not to see it. It's not there, practically speaking. Wall Street chooses not to see it. Hence, bonds have proven the best inflation hedge of the year 2021, which is not something you would have expected perhaps in the year 2020. You can see inflation in asset prices. You can see inflation at the checkout counter. You can see inflation in the foreign exchange markets. You can also see ways that it manifests itself. The thing itself is a monetary phenomenon, I think, it seems to me that it's present. It is here, and unusually today, it is present in all the aforementioned forms. We have inflation of asset values, self-evidently, with valuations of equities and suppression of interest rates. We have the lowest interest rates worldwide since interest rates were invented. We have some of the highest equity valuations since capital markets began. We have uh, uh, house prices rising at 15 or 20%, depending on what houses you're measuring. So the evidence of asset inflation is non-disputable. And then we have the humbler kind at the checkout counter and at rates between two, three, and four, and five, whether using year over year or sequential, whether you're projecting over the course of the year or not, annualizing, trimmed mean, all manner of ways of looking at it. It's also possible to overthink this and overanalyze it. Money is gushing. The Federal Reserve is laying it on with a trowel. And one question is, you know, how do you want to be wrong? We're always guessing about the future, and mostly we're wrong about the future. That's why the future was invented, right, to make us humble. So the question is, how do you want to be wrong? Do you want to be wrong by denying the possibility of inflation when the money supply is growing at double digits? Is that the way you want to make a mistake? So it seems to me that you have to present a somewhat academic and perhaps somewhat contrived argument to contend that inflation in these circumstances is impossible. You have, in addition to the monetary stuff, you have the fiscal blowout. So consider that the Fed in its insistence that these things, these manifestations of inflation are transitory, it is laying down an immense bet. The entire financial world, the, the world in which people are preening and counting their winnings in the 401ks or counting their capital gains in the cryptos, all of this hangs by the thread of the lowest interest rates in history, which interest rates are predicated upon the contention that there is no inflation. Right. So you really want to not hedge that? You know, gold has a way of disappointing its most uh, devoted adherents. You know, 2008 and nine broke people's hearts and went down you know, in the midst of the crisis. Well, yeah, gold is an ancient medium. It appears in the periodic table. I didn't invent it. Some people think I invented <laughs> I gold. No, you did. <laughs> it, appears, it appears in the periodic table. It's an old thing and it takes its sweet time, right? It has a a kind of a geological time sense. That's its clock, geological. Over the sweep of a reasonable investment horizon, it protects against the depredations of the stewards of our currencies. That's what its purpose is, and that's what it mainly does. Right. Over the course of fiscal quarters and even some years, it will disappoint. But over the, over the course of a reasonable investment long-term horizon, it will spare you punishment that our central bankers are willfully meeting out. Well, we've certainly seen that in the numbers over the last two plus decades. 
most of the investors we talk to are always surprised to see the overall uh, total return of gold relative to bonds, of course, cash. And even the S&P 500 has been one of the better performing assets out there, period. You know, it, it all depends on the time period. I mean, it, you go back to uh, the highs of 1980. And you look forward a couple of decades and the Wall Street Journal is writing stories about the idiots who are still holding these coins. And this was about the time that gold had gone from, oh, the course is here. Ahead to 850 in 1980. And then at the end of the 1990s, it was about $250 when uh, Chancellor Brown sold uh, Britain's. So that was a period of uh, the deepest anguish in the part of the gold faithful. And then you've got uh, several decades in which gold miraculously seemed to outperform equities, well, for Pete's sake. And you really have to take these things with a great grain of salt and, uh, and, just, and just say, all right. What I have here in gold, and very cheap gold equities, by the way, what I have here is an investment in monetary disorder, not a protection against it. We have it. Monetary disorder is, in fact, the monetary system. It is an inherently disorderly system. So in gold, you have an investment in that. You do well, the more disorderly it becomes, and especially well when the world recognizes the essential chaos of our monetary institutions. What would you say to an investor today who's maybe putting, you know, $10,000 to work in the market for the first time? You know, of course they have to buy dividend paying stocks. But, but you know, to your point about gold, what would you say to that investor? It's getting harder and harder to put your capital to work in the market because the market is getting so expensive. Um, how should someone think about that today? The higher the market the lower the prospective returns of anyone who invests at that high price. And we have the second richest valued market in modern annals. The outlook for prospective returns is not great. And uh, the risk of substantial capital loss is high. Income-bearing securities uh, bear little income, and you get nothing at the bank. How's that so far? How does that sound? The trouble is that you don't know when it stops. Okay, so if the question really is, should that person consider a few Krugerrands, I would say, yeah. Mm-hmm. I'd say that would be a helpful thing to have in one's portfolio with the knowledge that gold is non-regenerative. The idea of a common stock is you've got people out there every day working to increase dividends, working to build better products. So gold sits there looking good, like some people you know. Right. Right. <laughs> And so it's not meant to be one's entire portfolio, but it can play a part in stabilizing a portfolio, especially in times when uh, gold is among, I suppose, in relative terms, among the cheaper things. $1,800 an ounce, is that cheap? Is it rich? I would say that it's relatively cheap compared to the monetary risk that our central bankers are presenting to us with uh, suppressed interest rates right. and, and with uh, unending spinning of money through this thing we call quantitative easing. Well, I think stabilizing the portfolio is, is a key element, right? And I think also helping investors stay invested in, in the portfolio is key. So you so often hear it's not timing, it's time. You have to stay invested in the market. And I like to think gold helps you stay invested in other assets over multiple market cycles. That's the way we like to think about it over at Sprott. I think, I think that's true. Yeah, I think that's true. 
Well, Jim, it's it's you know I, I, we could do this for probably three or four hours, but I think we'd have one listen. No, <laughs> you know, it's been really great. To, it's been really great to have you on Sprock Gold Talk Radio, and and we really appreciate your time. And what I would tell uh, all the listeners that if you'd like to learn more about Jim Grant uh, Interest Rate Observer, we encourage you to visit their website, which is at grantspub.com. And learn more about what's going on in, in the economy, learn more about your environment, and learn more about how you can make gold work for you and, and help you stay invested in the market. So, Jim, do you have any last bits of wisdom you'd like to leave our listeners? I think I have spilled my entire bits of wisdom right here on the counter. <laughs> but thank you. Thanks for the opportunity. Wonderful. Well, thank you so much, Jim. Take care and enjoy your time off, and, and we'll talk soon. listening to the Gold Talk podcast by Sprott Inc. For more information and insights on precious metals investing, please visit sprott.com. This podcast should not be copied, distributed, published, or reproduced whole or in part. The information contained in this podcast does not constitute research or recommendation from any Sprott entity to the listener. Neither Sprott nor any of its affiliates make any representation or warranty as to the accuracy or completeness of the statements or any information contained in this podcast. And any liability, therefore, including in respect of direct, indirect, or consequential loss or damage is expressly disclaimed. The views expressed in this podcast are not necessarily those of Sprott, and Sprott is not providing any financial, economic, legal, accounting, or tax advice or recommendations in this podcast. In addition, the receipt of this podcast by any listener is not to be taken as constituting the giving of investment advice by Sprott to that listener, nor to constitute such person a client of any Sprott entity. Past performance is no indication of future results. 